1 Corinthians 15, 12-19 Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Welcome you into January 31st of 2021. We've almost got a month under our belt. Big welcome to our Way community and those that are coming into our virtual worship from parts farther off. We're in the middle. We're in the middle of a very small series we're calling The Offer of Christianity. And it's based on three words. Three words that have cropped up in volume and intensity uh, over this past year, both inside the church and outside the church as well. And those words are justice, longing for things to be put right, correcting injustices, and hope. Find something to hold on to during the grayness and morality. This week, uh, we're on hope. And so I I read something this past week that sounded like it might have come from a religious blog or podcast or your favorite religious guru or author. And and the phrase was this, a, a, a person and a culture cannot live and flourish without hope. A person in a culture cannot live and flourish without hope. And now that sounds a little preachery. Uh, aren't ministers the ones that are supposed to say things like that? Except it didn't come from a preacher. It came from Robert Putnam of Harvard, uh, author of Bowling Alone and Our Kids. And I, I think we usually think of um, needs, human needs, as attached to something physical, like food, oxygen, um, temperate environments, whatever it is, anything. And maybe that reveals our rationalistic impulses. But if we were to say um, uh, we have a personal need, need for hope, that sounds a little touchy-feely, perhaps maybe even a little too much um, emotionally based. But there we have it. Robert Putnam put that forward. And, and that drew me in this week. That little phrase drew me in. Uh, initially, that idea of why is it that it is a need? Why can we not live without hope? And so that's my argument this morning as we start this is, well, I'm going to have this argument that says we actually have a need for hope, which does sound preachery. We, we, we have a need as a community, and we have a need for hope as persons. Um, and, and I want to make this argument like it's not just this religious, philosophical luxury or bonus. It is a physical need that we have as human organisms. So <laughs> let's take, let's let's consider this. Let, let's say we took a, a pair of twins. Maybe that's redundant. 
let's say we took these twins and we took them from the same South Pass community and they had gone to the same schools and they still share a room with each other and we took these twins and we took them to the fashion or garment district next to Boyle Heights downtown LA and we put them in the same building and we outfitted identical little workspaces apart from each other but they were identical and we gave them the same job they're supposed to sew patches onto Harley Davidson jackets and throughout the day we gave them the same Spotify playlist okay and we gave them the same lunch every single day umami burger of course and we gave them the same hours and we gave them the same shared Uber back to South Pasadena every night where, by company policy, um, they had to watch Easy Rider every single night before bed. You know, with Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and a young Jack Nicholson. And what we did is um, we gave one twin the L.A. minimum wage of $15 an hour with no benefits whatsoever. And we gave the other twin the same rate of $15 an hour, except we told the second twin, we told him this, at the end of a year, you will get a $2.8 million bonus. So six months later, um, um, there's this conversation between the twins uh, over lunch at Umami Burger. And the first twin says, something like this you know I, I feel like dying I feel like punching anybody riding a motorcycle I literally want to throw up when someone says the word umami you know what else you know what else um, you know that ad free 30 minutes on free Spotify that's a lie it's a lie this city is dying. Our culture is falling apart. I've started to intentionally prick myself with a needle throughout my day just to feel something. Okay, the second twin is like, whoa. Dude, that's dark. You need help. I'm in, I'm in a really good place. I sing along with all the Spotify songs. And to tell you the truth, I could eat umami for every meal, including breakfast. And God bless all the motorcyclists out there and their adorable jackets. And you know those that loud, piercing, loud, enthusiastic, throaty roar of their engines and pipes? Isn't that like the sound of happiness? And and that Jack Nicholson in Easy Rider, that's, a, that's something special, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> What's happening? Same inane, obje inane, objectively mindless circumstance for both of them. But what? Um, both of them are looking at their current life in light of a very, very different future. That's hope. Or the absence of hope. You're interpreting your present circumstances in light of what's coming. Now, Putnam isn't so strange-sounding. He isn't so preachery-sounding. We are living organisms that live and flourish in hope. We need it. We need it. Hope actually doesn't just have implications for the future. 
It guides almost everything in the now, in the present. That's what that's what Putnam is getting at. Okay. So so what is the ultimate stopper then of hope? What's the, what's the biggest blocker we have for hope? What, according to sociologists, uh, philosophers, is the killer of hope? Okay, here's the downer. The thing that slaps meaninglessness on every pursuit, every project, and every person is death. It, right? It ends the very thing you had going. It ends you, according to popular thought. Whatever you loved, whatever you were into, whatever you enjoyed, whatever you were passionate about, click, nothing, cessation. Over, done, nothing. If there's nothing beyond that, if there's no future beyond that, that actually has certain implications for now. But what if, what if in the after, there is not just an extension of life, but a life that could be described as fuller and more so? In calling this the author of Christianity, there is also a simultaneous offer of rational, humanistic, materialistic, secularistic belief. What is that? All those little words I said, right? It just means that, look, matter is all we have. There's nothing beyond. There's nothing above us or transcendent. And some people call this the secular mind, right? And it just means that it's life without Um, the metaphysical, no divinity involved, no spiritual mumbo-jumbo, just matter. And so the offer of secular humanity is actually pretty straightforward here. There's no real magic. Um, With death ahead, death happens, and then what? Nothing happens. It's not even sensed, right? You just stop. It's actually what? Not a big deal. Um, this is uh, Luc Ferry, uh, another French atheist. I quoted one last week. He's another one um, two weeks in a row quoting French atheists. He wrote this little book called A Brief History of Thought. And, and Luc Ferry says this. He admits something about secular humanism as it relates to hope. He says, is that fact that something just stops is actually too brutal to be honest. It's too brutal to be honest. Because what? A a, a secularist will have a hard time providing personal and cultural hope that is grounded in something that can outlast death. It's too brutal about all the things you were loved, all the things that you just stop. They mean nothing. And so Putnam and Fari and others have said this, secularism has a hope problem. Um, just look at this. Uh, look at the movies and the games and the theater, um, uh, the novels, uh, the, just from the last 100 years. We've moved towards a growing library and diet of what? Future, dysfunctional, gritty dystopias. Arenas of teenagers killing each other. Vampires ad nauseum. Right? 
We're good with the vampires. We are flush with zombies. We have a lot of zombies. I, I, I can imagine spitballing in like a studio uh, boardroom, you know, tomorrow. Okay, I'm just spitballing here, but how about a figure skater who's a zombie, right? Like, we, we have enough zombies. We have enough zombies. Um, we've hit the threshold. Saturation point for zombies. Cyberpunks and AI that turns deadly and sinister and polluted. See, our cultural stories, our art, our imaginations do not paint a very bright future. And Luc Ferry says this, and it's his phrase, not mine. He says, there is a constant dread for the inevitable. A constant dread for the inevitable. Um, so Robert Putnam was looking at declining birth rates in secular societies and increasing wealth disparities and um, just spiking um, of depression and suicide in modernity among secular nations. Um, and he says this, it has to do with hope. Hope and secularism's inability to provide hope grounded on anything permanent. Um, Andrew Delbanco, um, uh, he wrote this little book called um, The Real American Dream. He was at Columbia University, and he really he based this book on three lectures that he had. And those three lectures, um, what he called a meditation on hope, um, is that he proposed that in every culture, um, every culture, every society turns to one of three things for hope. And and this is the three sections of his book, um, God, Nation, or the self, and 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 hopefully, pun intended, um, uh, uh, Del Banco thought that one of these three pacifiers um, provided hope. So to avoid this, and this is his phrase, this is his phrase: the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. That's pretty stark. Almost all cultures prior to modernity turned to religion, a god, a deity, right? And an afterlife, another life. All love, all pursuits, all loved ones didn't just stop. So, so secularism, they canceled God and they turned to a nation. They turned from divinity to humanity. And so there was this great enthusiastic rush, right? Uh, exhilarated rush into the inventions of modernity. Human cre creativity, human ingenuity, nobility, intrinsic human dignity, goodness, possibility, innovation, technologies upon technologies, right? The new iPhone is revolutionary with its photography. Biopharma can eradicate disease, maybe even slow death itself. I, I, I thought of this recently, uh, and I found this, I read this first in Keller's Reason for God. And, um, I, and it jogged my memory because I want to see this new film that just released in 2020 called The Invisible Man. It's based on H.G. Wells' um, kind of scientific, future scientific horror fiction. And uh, it's interesting because Keller brings up H.G. Wells in A Reason for God. And he says, Wells uh, wrote this after World War one and and after World War One in 1937, um, you know the world was looking at that horrible war and it was just like WTH that was weird. But let's look to the future because it's going to get better. So H.G. Wells wrote this in 1937. 
he said, um, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. That's from A Short History of the World by H.G. Wells. Okay, a little over a decade, 11 years later, H.G. Wells published this. This was after World War II and after he saw the rapacious greed of capitalism that was unleashed on multiple societies. And he wrote this just 11 years later. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless. The return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. That's from A Mind at the End of Its Tether by H.G. Wells. So, Wells didn't even get to see the rest of the century, did he? the most technologically advanced century that man has ever known and the quickest to evolve, right? Horse-drawn cart all the way to streaming 8K video from satellites. It's also called, and I've said this before to you all, the genocidal century by historians. Humans killed other humans more in the 20th century than the previous 19th centuries combined. See, H.G. Wells missed the smartphone and the amplified genocide. Putnam, hope, makes an individual and culture be able to function, flourish, thrive, grow, and develop. Um, The problem with secular modernity is that it cannot offer something transcendent. And that's contradicting almost every other culture preceding it. The secular answer cannot give us something beyond. It cannot have an answer for death except to say, everything you love, love, everything you live for, everything you think about, ceases. It stops, and one day it will all be forgotten. So C.S. Lewis, and this might be my first C.S. Lewis quote for you in 2021, but he wrote this in a little essay he called On Living in an Atomic Age. And I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, you know, we make too much drama of all of these threats, like nuclear bombs in his day. Um, But he could have equally have said COVID or markets crashing or hunger or different parties in power, whatever it is. And he said, we make too much of these, these, these horrible prospects. Why? If the ultimate end of matter is ceasing and stopping, and no one will ever be around to remember it, C.S. Lewis says this, Why does it matter if it happens now, or if it happens a million years from now? See, if Putnam says we need hope, then that is something that we must all intrinsically know and feel at a very, very deep level, is that death isn't natural, death isn't right. It's so very wrong. It's not cool. I want to love my family members. 
I want to live for something. I want to continue to know. I, I want to continue as a person. Um, Dylan Thomas, the poet, he was not a Christian. He said he went to church for the metaphors. Um, but he did touch a nerve when he got this right. He said, don't, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He got that visceral reaction. It's not right, and I'm going to fight it. It's not right, and I'm going to fight it. Here is the offer of Christianity. Here is hope for the future. Hope in the face of death after death after death. Uh, Now I'm going to encapsulate multiple sermons into like five lines. But here's the first one. The offer of Christianity gives you an absolute guarantee What I mean by that, it is an emailed receipt to you, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus is an emailed receipt to you that this really is yours. For surezies, for sure, for sure. Not just kind of, maybe, hopefully. No, for sure, for sure. It's not an idealized symbol of hope. It's not a fake banner of hope. We can know it's not a fantasy. How? The resurrection of Jesus... When Jesus came back to life by his Father, he appeared to hundreds at the same time. He walked over seven miles three days after a Roman crucifixion. Like, like that's our preview. Like, that can happen. It happened and it will happen. You have a receipt. It will happen to you. It happened, right? It, it, it opened up the sureness of it happening to you and to me. Okay, that's an Easter sermon, and I'm going to unpack that later at a later date. But but this is my current favorite. All right. The prospect of an afterlife of heaven because of the resurrection is not just a consolation, but it is more. I, I think we can look at heaven like a prize for all the tough sadness we went through. It's like appeasing your your, your crying seven-year-old and you just want him to stop. And so what do you do? You're like, um, 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 how, how about a cookie? How about a cookie? Well, just stop crying. Like we get bright fountains and gold-plated streets and a nice mansion or something. Consolation prizes. Hey, hey, um, hey, child, um, I'm so sorry about all that back there you had to go through. Um, but here, look, here, here's another diamond for your really cool baller crown. Boy, you look so good in that. And a contemplation prize is not heaven. Paul gets this. It's in our text this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read this because I, I want you to get the thrust of this. Um, he says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable body and this mortal body must put on the put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in your vic- in victory o death where is your victory o death where's your sting i want you to get this idea um, he paul does not say this he doesn't say you trade your perishable physical body for spiritual floaty bubbles of ethereal oneness. He doesn't say, hey, let's get you out of that nasty physicality. 
No, he says this. It's very important. He says, we're going to trade your physical body for a better physical body that doesn't degrade. Um, You don't just retain your personality with consolation prizes and flashy distractions. You walk into a fuller person, one that is more. All right, I, I love, love this next part. I hope this next part touches you emotionally in some way. And now that I said that, now you can put up your defenses and you can try to dodge my emotional my emotional plea to you, my emotional story. So now your radar can be super sensitive. I love this next part. I hope this touches you. Um, after Jesus is resurrected, do you know what's weird? Just odd. Like, no one would have thought to make up this part if they were lying about the resurrected, seeing the resurrected Jesus. Here's, here's what's weird in the New Testament accounts. People don't recognize the Jesus three days after his crucifixion. What? Why would you make that up? Two dudes walk with him over seven miles and they don't recognize him until afterwards. The first ladies don't know it's Jesus. What? Thomas does not recognize Jesus. The only connection that he first makes is wound placement, hand, side, right? Like people who have been around him every day for the past three years didn't recognize him. And then they did. And then they said, oh, oh yeah, that is him. Isn't that weird? The 2.0 resurrected Jesus is what? What's going on there? Um, here's what's going on there. What he is and what you will be and what I will be is not less physical but more physical it'll be like this out of college I did a lot of youth work and I worked with kids and and junior hires and high schoolers and years later years later I ran into one who I hadn't seen since she was like five or six years old and she came running up to me and she said hey Tim and I said, hey, uh, I don't know you. And she said, yeah, it's me. You were the youth director when I was in Aliceville. And I said, oh, 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 y- y- n- y- now I s- yeah. There's some of the old you in you, but you are, you are more, n- you're grown, wow. Whoa! See, all of us are going to look at each other and say, "I, oh, yeah, I, I do recognize, but, but I see more. I see more. You guys are going to look at me and say, "Hey, back then, Tim, we saw little flits and little flashes 
of what you could be every now and then. But mostly, Tim, we were really not that impressed with you. And every now and then we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. But Tim, this, now, yeah, I, I see it. Yeah, yeah, those flits and those flashes, they're full now. You, you see, heaven is not just some sucker's consolation prize. It's not just some cookie for all the tears. It's more. Love is better. You see better. You sense more. You notice more. You taste more. You are more. Now, now that's a hope that's going to do something in the future. But what kind of hope does something for the now? Um, I, I listen to Moth, and it's like This American Life, except with amateurs who are telling their stories. And some of them are incredibly moving. And this story comes from, I just heard this past week, comes from Bobby Stoddard. And he tells this story and as he was a young guy just out of college and he's living in Vermont. And there, uh, he's living there in a, in a season where there are these huge snowfalls and he loves to ski. And he, he loves making new tracks. That is, the, the person who's the first and only to hit the powder and make their own tracks be the first one down a mountain. And so he finds this mountain and slope that um, is an old ski uh, ski lift or ski resort um, and had gone bankrupt, so the lifts were not running. And so on, on the weekends, he hikes with his dogs up this mountain and he skis down and he calls it sublime uh, new powder fresh tracks beautiful and so on one saturday he hikes up and he skis down and he's totally alone and so he's at the bottom and um, he starts to unhitch his bindings and at the bottom there is he is in this little tiny depre depression but as it extends across the bottom of the, the mountain it becomes a gully and then it becomes a deep deep ravine so the depression that that little um, stretch becomes a deeper gash in the earth and so um, he looks up, he's unhitching his bindings, and he sees this family, and um, it's mom and dad, and there's a little kid in the sled, maybe halfway up the mountain. And, and dad is above mom on the mountain by 10 yards, and he pushes the toddler in this little plastic sled, and, and, uh, uh, um, and she gets him 10 yards down, and then they push him up 10 yards, and they repeat the process. And Bobby thought that was really nice, and he keeps watching. And um, the dad pushes the sled just slightly, and it goes 10 yards, and inexplicably, somehow, um, the sled goes through the mom's legs, and it continues down the slope. So the sled and the toddler are just gaining speed down the slope. Dad jumps on his sled, but he's not going to catch him. So Bobby starts running towards the imagined future intersection of toddler in sled uh, and the bottom, a except he's in this little depression and gully. And the more he runs towards this imagined intersection, um, the gully grows deeper like a very big ravine. And so he can't see where the toddler is. He can't see the family. He can't see the sled. And all he can hear is the primal screams of the mom wailing. And so he's just approximating. He's guessing. And he stops at what 
amounts to like vectoring guesswork and he sees this metal pylon that's used for the making of snow and he puts his hand on it and at that moment the toddler sled comes over the edge of the ravine and cliff and it twists and it dumps the two-year-old and the sled crashes on the opposite side of the ravine and the toddler lands in his arms just wide-eyed looking at him head inches from this metal pylon so dad's sled arrives and dad peers over this ravine far up and he looks at Bobby and he says wait where did you come from who are you and, and Bobby says hey I'm, I'm Bobby the mother arrives, he, Bobby hands her the kid, and she collapses in absolute tears of grateful gibberish. The dad is still kind of stunned, and he says to Bobby, he says, hey, do, do, do you read the Bible? Do you believe in God? And Bobby says, no, not really. I'm not into the God. And this man says, uh, well, I read the Bible. I don't believe that God does anything without a purpose, and I believe God put you here today to catch my son. And Bobby's reflecting on this, and he says, I don't really believe that kind of talk very often. But when it happens to you, and someone says that to your face, you kind of take stock in your life. Maybe I'm a baby catcher. Maybe I help people. Maybe I do have a purpose. This part gave me chills. Uh, the new hope and the possibility did something to me, Bobby said. Bobby said he smelled oxygen that day. He saw every last shade of white of the snow. The air had color. As he was driving, he said every single raindrop exploded onto his windshield with unique interest and variation. He said he smelled cigarettes from a hundred yards away. He went to this pub afterwards and he said every little nuance and movement and twitch and tick of the people around me interested me and fascinated me. He said, I had more of every sense. Do you see the connection? Hope. Jesus' resurrected body, more so, more physical, more full. Paul says it, our bodies become better bodies, not bodies consoled with expensive consolation prizes. Martin Luther, right, 16th century reformer, he said this, if I were to die tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. Wait, huh? Why? Hope. He knew that life is extended, but more so. A tree, a little tree planted today is going to be a better tree in eternity. The physical takes on the physical that doesn't get worse. We start something and extends to fullness. The things we love don't just stop and go into nothingness, but get better. That's hope. That's the offer of Christianity, and it guides our present, doesn't it? The physical will become better and more so, not less so. The troublesome circumstances we find ourselves in. 
listening to Spotify, spending and getting and fidgeting as we wait for death, eating umami burgers, watching our nation and ourselves disappoint us. What changes are present? Hope. Hope. Real, certain, physical hope. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have given us hope in Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Apply that hope to our hearts. And may it not just be the writing for our future. May it guide and press upon our present in countless, immeasurable ways. In Jesus' name, amen.